All right, well, you're, while you're grabbing those, let's do a little review here real quick if we can. Let's just get these, if we can do it without peeking on page number four. Let's try and shout these out so we understand the steps from God's thoughts to that English text in your lap. We've got to get first God's truth from his mind to the mind of a prophet or an apostle. And that first step is called revelation. Very good. God reveals. He discloses what is otherwise unknown. And we blew through that last week, but that's all we're going to do. We're kind of rushing the schedule so we can spend a lot of time in textual criticism and translation. If we've got it in the mind of the prophet and that thought is now going to be inscribed on a manuscript, we call that step inspiration. inspiration. Very good. Once it is on a manuscript, and you may have several there, we now have to recognize, is this really a part of God's inspired library? Does it really belong here in the canon of Scripture? And we call that step canonicity. And I kind of gave that one away, didn't I? If we say, yes, we have now a recognized, inspired library of God, and it's 66 books, and we recognize which those are, they've got to make their way through time, in our case, at least from the first century to the 20th century, or the 1400s BC, if you start with Genesis through Deuteronomy, and we've got to get here, we call that step transmission, very good. Once we now have the fragments and parts and holes of all the ancient manuscripts that are extant or existing today, if we're going to put those into our best and most accurate reconstruction of the original manuscripts, if we're going to create that from all the copies that exist, we call that step what? Textual criticism. Now we have what we call a critical edition of the Hebrew Old Testament and the critical edition of the Greek New Testament, and we're going to put that into our language, in our case, English, we call that step translation. translation. Very good. So we've got revelation, inspiration, canonicity, transmission, textual criticism, and translation. Tonight I want to deal with inspiration, and look how large those letters are. <laughs> so happy about that. That may be the last of the 72-point font, but at least the first slide has it. All right, defined by Scripture, no better passage to go to than 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, and it was so important that I printed it there for you on your worksheet. Is there a problem? We got it? What page is that? All right. All Scripture, here's how the NIV reads, is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Verse 17 says, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay, that's the verse. Now, the key word that we need to grapple with for a little while tonight is the word that is translated into English, God-breathed, God-breathed. We see that in the NIV, which was translated in 1973. That's when that hit the presses and was uh, codified for us in the New International Version. Now that, though, is an old translation because this actually originally was in the 1526 first translation from Greek and Hebrew into English in Tyndale's translation in 1526. So this has been around a long time and became inordinately popular because the King James translators used the same word inspiration. And most translations today will read 
inspiration, that the scriptures are given by the inspiration of God. That's how most translations read out of the, I don't know, 30 I checked in English this week, uh, all but a few, and I mean four, uh, used the translation inspired or inspiration in the verse translating this word. Now that word, you need to know, is a much older word than even the 16th century. This word is actually coming from the Latin Vulgate. More on that later when we get to uh, the transmission of the text and, and translations. But the Vulgate became the standard Bible from the, actually, the 4th century, into the 4th century, 5th century, all the way on. We had that as the primary text of the church in Latin. And the translation from Greek into Latin was divinitus inspirata. And that word inspirata from Latin was simply transliterated from Latin into English in 1526 and has arrived in all but a few Bibles on my shelf in the 21st century. So this word to inspire goes back a long way. And that is not a good thing in this case. You might say, well, that's fantastic. It's been well-preserved. The problem is the word in Latin, inspirata, and the word inspiration mean two different things, although it is translated in almost an identical transliterated way. If you take an old Latin dictionary, I have two in my library, old Latin dictionaries, pull them out, put the Latin lexicon down on your desk, and look up the word inspirata, Here's what you'll find. The verb inspiro will be defined in your dictionary as to breathe out, to blow in, or to blow on. That's what inspirata or inspiro means. So when Jerome translated the Bible from Greek in the New Testament in this passage, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, into Latin, he picked that word because whatever he saw there in that Greek language, he said, well, this is a good Latin equivalent in spiro, and it is to blow, to breathe out, to blow in or to blow on. That's a problem. It's a problem because if you open up your English dictionary and you look up the word inspiration, here's what you'll find. The definition of inspiration in your English text is a stimulation of the mind or emotions. I was sitting around, I was watching TV, I was flipping through the channels, I saw a commercial on, you know, you know, the sham wow, and I had a, I was inspired to get up and, and wash my car. I was stimulated in the mind or in my emotions. And I got, got my big rear end out of the chair and I went out and I washed my car. It's just an illustration, it didn't really happen, by the way. <laughs> I haven't washed my car in who knows how long. Inspiration. Definition number two will read something like this. A sudden or creative act or idea. I had an inspiration, right? That was an inspiring act. It was something that was a sudden creative idea or behavior or act. It is something that I do and it's like, wow. The picture is, inspiration is, is a guy who's just reaches and thinks and, and has an idea, a great idea, to do something great. And when we read the word inspiration in a text like this and we attach it to the realm of the Bible, we start saying, I get it, I get it. Moses sat around and was inspired to write the Bible. 
Peter sat there one day, and, 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 and I know he had other things to do, and he was thinking of it, but he grabbed a, a pen, and, and he picked a piece of parchment up, and he started writing because he was inspired. Okay? It's not what the word means in any way in the biblical text. That is not what it means. All right. To help us with this, and even that illustration that I just gave you, it is good for us to ask the question, what is inspired? What is inspired? Okay? That's the question. Looking at the text, reading the verse, that is a very important verse for us to understand what the Bible, how the Bible came to be. How did it get from the mind of the prophet into the pages of Scripture? How did that work? Well, we, we need to ask the question. Well, it's an adjective. You've got it printed on your worksheet right there. What is, what is God-breathed? Okay, that's the question. And, and what's great about this notebook, by the way, is on the opposing page, it's blank. And you'll find we're going to do a lot on page 17, so you may need some extra writing space if you're that kind of person. Okay? Does the adjective describe the writer? Look at the text. Is that what the adjective in the text describes? No. Matter of fact, and I wish we had the advantage of all knowing the Greek language and putting it up there, you'd see that the adjective that is translated inspiration in most translations or is translated God-breathed in the NIV does not describe the writer, which is the common way that people immediately jump to thinking, hey, Bible, how did it come to be? Inspiration, I get it. The writers were inspired by God to write the Bible. That's not, what the, that's not what's being said here. It's not a biblical doctrine. The authors were not inspired to write the Bible. It's not, what it's, not, it's not what it's teaching. That's because we're taking a modern English translation and imposing it on a biblical verse because we've taken a 4th and 5th century Latin word and we have brought it all the way across into English while that word in English today means nothing close to what it meant back then. Is it the reader? Though people often don't say this about this text, they say this about the process of the Bible. They think, Bible, I get it. The Bible is a tool that God uses to inspire me. No, it's not the reader. Okay? Clearly, in this text, the adjective is describing the scriptures, the tographe, the writings. Now, all scripture, right? They're God-breathed. The scriptures are inspired, not the reader, not the author. If you just pick that up tonight, and can keep that as a clear statement in your mind, and you never again use the word inspiration about, if you're going to use the word at all, about the author or the writer, we've done a lot. That's a good thing. We need to keep that as a forever kind of slot in our mind, and we never miss that. Okay? It is the doctrine. I mean, the, uh, the scriptures that are inspired. Now, let's just talk a little bit about this difference. As I said... If you read King James, New King James, New American Standard, New Revised Standard, Revised Standard, New Living Translation, New Century Bible, the Net Bible, you name it, you're going to find the words inspiration or inspired, okay? I got a problem with that because it doesn't really capture what the word meant and certainly what the Greek word means, okay? So the translations, most of them say inspired by God or given by the inspiration of God. There's only... Four that I could find in my rather expansive library that use the words God-breathed. The NIV, and I'm so grateful for that, and I guess you could add the TNAV, but I'm counting TNAV and NIV as one. The ESV, and I'm very grateful for that, a new translation, very important. 
good one, breathed out by God. And if you want to complete the list, those are the two important ones. The others are important. The guys that spent time on the other ones would think theirs were important too. But uh, the ISV, a lot of people haven't heard of that one, the International Standard Version uh, out of Southern California, actually. And Wiest's translation, which is sometimes actually produced as a translation. It's a rather expanded translation. And I guess you could add the Amplified Bible, which does add the phrase, but it's like in a bracket behind it. So let's just say five to be gracious. Five out of the 30 that I checked, and, I mean, there's a lot more than 30 English translations that are still being used today. But you can see that not many do. I am totally, totally in favor of the NIV and the ESV using the phrase, God breathed. Even though it makes you say, what? <laughs> it's a great thing for us to do instead of using the old traditional Latin transliterated word, inspiration, because that does not help us. Okay? So, let's grapple with the word a little bit. Theopanustos is the word, it's a compound word, theopanustos. That is the word translated God-breathed, okay? Obviously, theos, theology, theophany, you know the word theos is the word for God in the Greek language, super common word, okay? Nuo is the root of panustos, if you want to pronounce it that way, is used in passages like Matthew 7, 25. Now you're going to start to get in the sandals of Jerome and you're going to figure out why he used the Latin word inspiro for this word because when you read this word, nuo, in the text, you find it translated this way. The rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. That's the word. Same word without the compound theos in front of it, but that's the word. You'll find Luke chapter 12, verse 55. That was this thing where he's talking about prophecy, and he says, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say it's going to rain, and when the south wind blows, right, nuo, you say it's going to be hot, and it is. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, but you don't know how to interpret the present time. The point, though, is the wind blowing, either in a storm against the house or the south wind blowing and making it a hot day, kind of like our Santa Ana winds. John six eighteen. When evening came, his disciples went to the lake. There they got in the boat. They set off across the lake. But now it was dark. Jesus got, had not yet joined them. This is the walking on the water narrative on the Sea of Galilee. And it says here in verse number 18, And a strong wind was blowing, Nuo, and the waters grew rough. And they had rowed for three and a, they had rowed for three and a half miles. They saw Jesus walking on the water, terrified, as we would all be. All right, so... God blows out. If you were just to take the consistent translation of the word nuo and put it into this verse, you would have a phrase like this. All scripture is blown out by God. But see, that doesn't translate very well. That'd be a very literal translation of this text. All scripture is, is blown out by God. Okay? Okay, weird. Here's the picture, though. This is Tolkien smoking his, uh, his pipe. Here's a man, unknown, unidentified man, blowing out smoke rings. Have you seen this illustration before? Do you see the smoke ring there? Which is really cool. I've never smoked, but if I did, that would be something I'd want to learn to do. <laughs> right? No? I ever. Whatever. I'm not going to start. I have never done it. Here's the picture, though. God blows out the tographe, the scriptures. Isn't that a weird thought? Isn't that a weird concept? That is the picture. 
It doesn't even, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, even include the authors. They're not even a part of the sentence. And the readers, they're not in view. I mean, not until the next verse when we talk about what it will do for us. The picture is God breathing out a book. That's the picture. God breathes out the writings. If we're going to talk about inspiration, which I'd prefer we talk about the doctrine of God-breathed, that would be better, we need to talk about God breathing out, blowing out a writing. That's the picture. All right, let's talk more about this. We're going to build this edifice here. Why is 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16 important? Because 2 Timothy 3.16 describes, at least we would argue if I was a skeptic, only the Old Testament. The scriptures were generally used in the New Testament to describe the Old Testament law, prophets, and writings. Altogether were called the scriptures. Jesus, you say you don't know the power of the scriptures, the writings. And he was referring to the Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament. Okay, that was what was in view. Now, if you say, well, that's interesting. Why is this so important then? Because 2 Peter 3.15 equates the Old Testament ta-graphe with the New Testament ta-graphe, the writings and the writings. 2 Peter 3.15 and 16. We ought to look that one up. Once you write that down. 2 Peter 3.15 and 16. You guys doing okay tonight? All right. It's good. What was for dinner, by the way? What did we have? What was it? A sandwich. Did someone say fish? Was it a fish sandwich? No. I would smell it if it was a fish sandwich. Just a sandwich. Bear in mind, are you with me on this? Verse 15. That our Lord's patience means salvation. In other words, as long as he waits and doesn't wrap up the world history, we got time to see more people saved. That's a good thing. So bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, because this passage started with, where's Christ? Where's Christ? You guys said Christ was coming back. Where's Christ? And the answer is, well, he's waiting, because he'd like you, you thick-headed uh, crit critic, to become a Christian. That's the turnabout in this passage. He said, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you, now he's a New Testament author, right? with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other tagraphe scriptures to their own destruction. In other words, you disregard the Old Testament. We've already learned. Jesus told us what happens to you if you don't pay attention to the Old Testament. Don't heed that. New Testament takes the word, tagraphe, and now applies it to New Testament writings, at least in this text, and we'll expand it further, to Paul's writings, which is about half of the New Testament. So 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 is important. And while I left you quite a space there, we'll talk more about this on page 19, so put a bookmark in your mind on that. Now, as defined by Scripture, 2, Peter, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all we've learned so far is that whatever inspiration is, it is God's breathing out of a book. Like you would breathe out a spoken word, he breathes out a written word. Okay? 
Now, let's deal with this. How does it work? Get into the inner workings, open the hood on the concept of inspiration, and we go to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, printed there for you. Let's read it. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. It wasn't man that had the thought, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's a helpful picture. Whatever inspiration is, now that we add the prophet in the middle of this, he becomes a part of a chain of events that begins with God's thoughts that now he is privy to and the Holy Spirit is going to carry him along until that prophecy is written. That word then becomes critical. The word becomes critical. What word? The word carried along. Pharaoh, pretty common. Pharaoh is a pretty common Greek word. You Greek students know that. But when you add it as a participle and you put it in the passive voice, it becomes much more rare. Now it's not, I carry the, 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 the wood to the fire or I carry the man along, right? But something about being carried along now the, the subject, the object of the sentence becomes someone who is carried by something else. And that picture here is what's in view. The people that spoke from God, and obviously the step that's not stated here because it begins with written scripture, no prophecy of scripture, the writings, their speaking was written, but they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Pharaoh, passive form. Now, here's the picture in Acts 27, 17, and this one's worth turning to, verses 15 through 17, 15 and 17, both, both passages. I don't know why I put 17, I guess because it ran into my 16th century sailboat, ship. I know it can't be a first century ship because I think it has a British flag on the bow. That's a problem. An anachronistic photo for us here woodcut drawing. Acts 27, 15. Let's start in 15. Two references here. The ship was caught by the storm. You remember this? This is very interesting. Matter of fact, very unique vocabulary, you Greek students. You look through this passage and you find more unique words, vocabulary words, that have helped a lot of historians with extra biblical concepts as it relates to, to seagoing and sailing in the, in the first century. But anyway, whatever. Verse 15, the ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it. This is a great setup for this word. And we were driven along. There it is. We were driven along. We were carried along. We couldn't resist it. It overpowered us. We were just a pawn here like a ship being driven by the wind. Then we passed through all these places. And then he reiterates this at the bottom of verse 17. He says, fearing that we would run aground. Do you see that there? He says, they lowered the sea anchor and they let the ship be, here it is again, passive form of Pharaoh, we, were the sh we let the ship be driven along. The picture here is of a prophet in the middle of some kind of, of, of chain of events where he doesn't have the initial idea, God does, he now is given that idea and he is carried along so that the bottom line, the tography, the prophecy of writing the scripture 
is the end result. The origin, which is where we're going next, is important here because he goes to great lengths to say it's not the prophet and it's not the prophet's interpretation. So whatever is written, it didn't come from the prophet's mind, ultimately, and it didn't come from the prophet's interpretation of God's mind. Revelation, we already established, was God disclosing to people what would otherwise be unknown. The apostles and prophets have now this process of God putting that thought in their minds and driving them to the end goal of a written document. That is the picture of inspiro. Right? And we, it's interesting that the word that is used as a part of the process is a word that is also related to wind, carried along like a, a ship or a boat. The, or, or, or the origination of, of the message, the thought, the concept, the truth in this passage is said to be God himself. I mean, that's a big deal. Even if we can get past transmission and, and textual criticism and translation and all of that, what we're saying is that what you read in Paul's writings to the Ephesians, what you see in Isaiah's writings to the pre-exilic Israel, not really his thoughts. Oh, he gets the thoughts as a part of a process, but the Holy Spirit was moving him along to put that into a written form. That's a big claim. The agent, though, is not the prophet, and the agent is not the prophet's interpretation of God. The agent is... In this text, not God, but the Holy Spirit. God has a thought in the mind of the prophet now, Revelation. God now takes that prophet, and the Holy Spirit is so involved in the superintending of that prophet that what is the end result of his writing is something that the Holy Spirit has driven him to. That's the claim of the Bible. And the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture came about that way by the God blowing out of a book. And if you want to get under the hood of that, God was the originator of the truth and the Holy Spirit guided him until that was placed into a written format. Now you can say, I don't believe that. Great. Don't believe it if you don't want to. But that's what the Bible claims about itself. All right. Well, some people say, well, that sounds a lot like dictation. It's not dictation. There is a distinction between God-breathed and dictation, and I say this is a sidebar because I don't have a point for it here on your worksheet. But I'm not going to step to the side of the pulpit. God-breathed versus dictation. Remember this. While Paul, Peter, Hosea, Micah, whoever it is, is clearly doing the writing, or we'll use 1 Thessalonians 2.13 as an example, doing the speaking, they understand that this process of inspiration is ultimately a message that is derived from God. But they are the ones bringing it. They are the, 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 the avenue through which the Holy Spirit gets the job done. Oh, I, I put, the, put the verse. Let me read it for you. You don't need to turn there. We thank God continually because when you receive the word, Paul speaking to the Thessalonians, looking back on his missionary journey there, he says, which you heard from us, we were giving it to you. We were preaching to you. You accepted it, not as the word of men, but what it actually was, or is, he says, present tense, the word of God, and it's at work in you. We're giving God the credit for the work that the message does in you because we recognize that it was God's word and God's message, but it came through our voices, our outlines, our speaking. 
Now, while some preachers claim that today, this is a unique claim in the scripture of written scripture, not everyday preaching. And the great analogy, I think, that may help you is an artist, a hammer, and the tools. If you keep that in your mind, you have, you have the picture. The artist, the hammer, and the tools. It is not direct dictation, but the end result is what God exactly wants. But if you look at an artist putting a sculpture together, you've got the hammer, if you will, the agency of the inspiration being the Holy Spirit. God, if you will, I know this is an illustration, picks up the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit then grabs a tool and does the work so that the end result is from God, but bears the marks of the tools. Peter's writings about God's sovereignty looks different than Paul's writings about God's sovereignty, but they're perfectly harmonized because they come from the same author, they're driven by the same hammer, but they look a little different in terminology because God used different tools. The end result, though, was so unique, was so transcendent above the ability of the tools themselves to fall off a shelf and make the statue that we have to say, this is a, this is a work of God. And if you have studied a little bit of the languages or the grammar or the syntax of the Old Testament or the New Testament, you see that the writing styles and the vocabularies and the complexity of sentences is different depending on who you're reading. But you stand back and you recognize that over three continents and three languages, over 1,400 years, you can stand back and harmonize the views of God in Isaiah, 750 years B.C., and Peter and John in the first century, A.D. That picture is of God doing something that is unique, not just the harmonization, but how about the predictive prophecies, which are really the dead giveaway in all of this. How do I know this book? We'll get into this with the canon a little bit. Is a book that comes from God and not from men because men can't predict the future the way that God can, and God is always challenging people. Hey, prophets of the false gods, the Ashtaroth poles, can you come and predict the future? If you can't, don't tell me that you are an omniscient deity. You're not. And God says that's the unique imprimatur, if you will, on the scripture, which is one of the references I gave you on the bibliography sheet. And if this is a whole different apologetic topic, but we do need to get to a place where we start to recognize that inspiration is not inspiration because the Bible says it is. I know people say that, oh, it's circular reasoning, the Bible claims. Well, I can write a book that claims it's from God. But if I can't put some kind of transcendent, supernatural imprimatur into that book, then you're going to dismiss it. Just like the people that today are writing books that are claiming lots of things that don't come true. And 50%, by the way, according to Deuteronomy 18, won't cut it, right? The prophet who prophesies one thing that does not come true according to Deuteronomy, were to be taken out to the edges of the camp and stoned to death. So it's a very risky business to get involved in writing scripture. Uh, you want to be sure you're actually a prophet. So let's make a definition here. Number two, page 18. What is theopneustos? What is God-breathed? That might be a better way to put it. I don't know why I put inspiration there, because that's the doctrine of inspiration. If you're going to look it up in a book, you're going to find that. But I prefer we use the phrase God-breathed or the doctrine of Theopneustos. What, what is it? A few things. Let's put down a very important definition from all that we've already looked at. It's the process. Okay? 
Inspiration is a process. We've seen that in 2 Timothy chapter 1, or 2 Peter chapter 1. It's a process by which God, he is the originator of this, records his message. God is ultimately doing his writing, if you will, through agency. He records his message, and it's in words, as we'll see, very important part of this, using, using chosen human authors, several of them, 40 authors, 66 books. He utilizes their writing styles. Obviously, the product reflects that. And their personalities. And while he uses those, just like an artist with a hammer or a mallet might use a chisel of this kind or a chisel of that kind, the end result is God stands back. This is the doctrine of inspiration, Theopneustos. He stands back and says, it's exactly what I wanted to do. That book is what I wanted to create. And I want it to be the book. That's why we call it the Bible. That's why it's the best-selling book in the world. It's not the Koran. It's not the writings of Confucius. It is the most prolifically copied, printed, distributed book in human history. The process by which God recorded his message in words using chosen human authors 40 of them, utilizing their writing styles and their personalities, but standing back when it's all done, resulting in an exact record of God's revelation in the original documents. Let me add that. Didn't see that tucked in there. Can you still read that font? Sure you can. In the original documents. Therein lies why we have to spend a few weeks dealing with textual criticism. Because with 2,000-year-old, those are the most recent manuscripts of the New Testament, right? I mean, the most, I mean, if we were to find John's actual 22 chapters of the book of Revelation, right, it'd be 2,000 years old. The problem with writing on papyrus, which everyone did, is it's not going to survive 2,000 years. And we don't have the originals. So we have to recognize that while God promised inspiration to the text itself, the writings, right? He didn't make that promise for the copies of the writings. And therein lies a little bit of the trouble that we have in finding all of the thousands of ancient manuscripts from the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, and 10th centuries that we put on a table and try to figure out, okay, what exactly were the words that were originally written in Revelation chapter 12 or 1 Peter chapter 1? Textual criticism. Well, that sounds kind of kind of weird, kind of, I don't know, out there. It's not all that weird. As a matter of fact, anyone who believes in the virgin birth of Christ already has a paradigm in their mind for this, okay? Follow me on this. I ripped this off from Paul Inns in his book on biblical theology. God sends the incarnate word. If you're, a, you know, even a partway orthodox Christian, you believe that God did the work in the incarnation, okay? God sends the incarnate, incarnate. You know what carne is, right? You Mexican food eaters. It's flesh, meat. God sent his son who preexisted. You didn't, right? What were you doing a thousand years ago? Nothing, right? But a thousand years before Christ came, he was doing something because he preexisted. And then God put him into human form. To put him into human form, that's the incarnation, we are believing the same thing about the thoughts of God. 
that God is sending his written word to man. God sends the living or incarnate word, and he sends the written word. Look, though, at your just basic understanding of the incarnation and see how it perfectly mirrors the paradigm of the coming of the written word. We believe, for instance, that God sent his incarnate word through a real person. The Immaculate Conception of Mary notwithstanding, we believe, us Protestants at least, she was a real human being, normal person, right? Just like Peter was a normal person. But God's spirit came as an agent of the birth of Christ, and here's the word in the New Testament, and this is not a class on Christology. If it was, we'd go into this word. But he overshadowed Mary, that's the word, translated into English, and the result was a child, and that child was without sin. Now, his brothers and sisters were sinners like us. Born of Mary, here's the thing, Peter wrote some things that weren't inspired scripture. Peter wrote some things that were inspired scripture. Mary had a kid that was the incarnate, sinless man. And then she had some other kids. Again, the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary notwithstanding, because it's not true. Uh, more on that in another class, Christology. Sorry, former Catholics or current Catholics. I'm going to make the Catholics mad a lot here. And I don't mean to, but this is a Protestant church. You all are aware of that, right? I just want to clarify that. People think they've wandered into Compass Catholic Church, but it's, it's not. Make sure the news vans get that right. Now listen here. Sorry. Mary had other kids. You know that. I could prove that to you. We'll do that afterwards if you want. Mary has other kids, and they are not the sinless incarnate Son of God. But guess what? They probably looked a lot alike, right? The vocabulary of Peter on his letter to his mom looked a lot like the letter to 1 Peter. But it wasn't the same. Because what he said to his mom wasn't inspired, the revelation of God's thoughts codified in propositional statements on a piece of paper or a piece of parchment. Well, that's the same picture here, right? We believe God took human authors, 40 of them. He superintended, or our word, theopneustos, and the end result was a word without error. It was unlike the other letters these guys wrote. Now, Jesus did some things that proved he wasn't a normal rabbi. The word of God does some things that proves it's not a normal book. And that's, again, a whole other sermon. But I have preached those, and there are great books written on that, and you can look at the evidence. Predictive prophecy is the nail in the coffin. And for those in Germany in particular in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries that were constantly trying to redate the writings of the, Bibles, the Bible because the more they saw the books of the Old Testament showing God's imprimatur of predictive prophecy on where Christ would be born, how he'd be born, what tribe he'd be from, how he would live, how he would die, they had to continually post-date the predictive prophecies after the life of Christ, Right? That's the only way you can bat a thousand on predictive prophecy. I can write, and I'm not, I probably couldn't even do it perfectly, but I could, I could write a predictive story about yesterday and date it the day before, and it'd be a pretty good predictive prophecy document, right? Because I'll write it afterwards. Well, that's what they were saying about the Old Testament, that so much of what was written, say particularly in the book of Daniel, right? C predicting which nation would fall and which nation would rise, even the name of the leader and the nation after that and the nation after that 
to predict all of those things before they ever happen with specificity about who they were, that, wow, got to be written after the fact. And while every, that was all the rage and all the books were piling up in the theological centers and training seminaries around the world, particularly coming out of Europe and Germany in particular. And then a little shepherd boy threw a rock in a cave and heard a little jar break, right? Because we didn't have any Old Testament manuscripts predating the ninth century. Well, we had a couple of scraps. But basically, the gist of Old Testament manuscripts, Old Testament manuscripts, came from the 10th century A.D. So it was easy to say, well, Daniel was probably written in the 3rd century A.D. Until, of course, we yanked out an entire library that the Jews had stuffed into the clefts of the rocks outside of the Dead Sea as they ran up to Masada to get slaughtered by the Romans. Actually, they committed suicide, most of them up there. You know the story of Masada, right? They uncovered their library from the 2nd, 1st century B.C., and they pulled those things out, and they found 65 of the 66 books of the Old Testament. The first one they found, which finally made its way to a monastery in downtown Jerusalem, which was then brought over to the, the Oriental Research Department, and a guy named John Trevor took pictures of it, was the 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah completely in one piece, which took a big pile of books about the post-dating of the book of Isaiah and made them absolutely obsolete. The Dead Sea Scrolls were an amazing find. And God did those kinds of things and tucked things away to prove, I wrote these things before they happened. And that is why we believe that the Word was written by God and it's not a normal book. It's not a Gene Dixon, you know, highlight book. It was just like Jesus doing things that made him different than the rest of the prophets. God sends the incarnate word, God sends the written word. The end result is, though using human, fallen, imperfect beings like Mary and all of the prophets and apostles ends up giving us a word without error. Claims of the document, the Old Testament. Let's start there. General claims. Let's start with the word prophet, nabi. The word nabi in Hebrew, the word prophet. That was a critically important word that was given at the very beginning to Moses. The very first writer, if you will, tool in the toolbox that God used to write the first five books of the Old Testament. He was called a Nabi. The Nabi, translated into English, the prophet, means, here's the definition, a mouthpiece of God. Which is great, by the way, if he's going to be used as a tool to write a breathed out book. Right? Like your mouthpiece, you brass players, remember, dust off your memories of your old mouthpiece. Think about that. Or like a, you, you blow through that and make a, make a sound. God blows through Moses and makes a sound. But it's in writing. And he's called the Nabi, the mouthpiece of God. You read the word prophet and we think, oh, prophet, 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 I get it. Prophet means mouthpiece of God. God is speaking through a person. The stipulations for prophets, we've already touched on this. Deuteronomy chapter 18 is important if you want to put down a reference. The stipulation for the prophets was you'd better be a real prophet speaking the real words of God and God is going to garnish the current and relevant message with predictive prophecies that will come true. And if they don't come true, you're going to be killed. Don't listen to him. Disregard him if anything he says about the future does not come true. 
That claim shows this is not just your best interpretation on God because we're going to cut people slack on that. There was no slack for the prophets. The binding law of the prophets. If he is a prophet and he's a real mouthpiece of God, you do what he says, and if you don't do what he says, then you will be killed. <laughs> I mean, this is huge. This must be God, the ultimate authority of the universe. Another general claim, at least by inference, about the authority of Scripture is that those texts were then kept in the most holy place. Do you know where the first five books ended up? Do you know where we took the first tablets, the first thing that God used uh, Moses to write, the first one on the finger of God on the tablets, put them in the box, the Ark of the Covenant, in the inner sanctum of the Holy of Holies, first in the tabernacle, later in the, in the temple. They took these books and they realized this is special. These are the writings of the prophets. And that means we've got words from God. Now keep those in a special place. The collection references throughout the Old Testament. Those are general claims. How about some more specific claims? How about the repeated connections made between the mouthpiece and the actual words of God? You can just say, well, the general concept is if you're a prophet, a nabi, then you're, you're, you're speaking for God. But let me read you Leviticus 1, 1 and 2, for instance. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him in the tent of meeting, and he said, that is he, God said, right, through Moses, speak to the Israelites and say this to them, when you bring an offering and off we go with the book of, of Leviticus. How about Numbers chapter 1, verse 1? The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent, Right? In the desert of Sinai. And he gives the date, first day of the second month, second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. And he said, boom, 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 11. Samuel in this case. The Lord says to Samuel, and here is the message. Boom, see, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone sing. The connection between the prophet and the words of God are very specific. And the equating of those two things, when Moses speaks... In that state, God speaks. When Samuel speaks as a prophet, God speaks. Exodus 20, verse 1. That's the beginning of the, pen, of the uh, Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And God spoke these words. The repeated use of phrases like this. You can get some of them down, all of them if you want. Phrases like, God spoke these words. Dot, dot, dot. And here it comes. Thus says the Lord dot, 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 all through the classical period of the prophets. That's what they're saying. Thus says the Lord. The Lord says this. Or they would refer to the writings of the previous prophets as the law of the Lord, the binding statements of God, and it came through those guys. Or they would call it the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a third time. Boom, and here's what he said. The connection between the prophet, the Nabi, the mouthpiece, and the actual speaking of God is consistent throughout the Old Testament. Of course, if we are New Testament Christians, we're very interested in the New Testament support of the Old Testament claims. Jesus, for instance, repeatedly affirmed the truthfulness and the authority of the Old Testament. He says of the writings of Moses, you have let go, this is Mark 7, 8. I think I put that down, there it is, Mark 7, 8. You have let go of the commands of God, not the commands of Moses, not the command of the prophets, and instead you were holding to the traditions of men. God was always making the distinction between, you know, your leaders who are not prophets 
They say one thing, we'll call that tradition. And then the commands of God that came through the prophets of God in the Old Testament, those are the commands of God. Commands versus traditions. And Jesus was always making a distinction. You've set aside commands that came through the prophets, and you are holding to your leaders' traditions. Which, by the way, for those of you that are Catholics or former Catholics, that's an important distinction that Jesus continually makes. Are you going to listen to human leaders, or are you going to listen to prophets? The prophets who have written in the name of God, who have the imprimatur of God. And that is, they prove the fact that they are speaking for God, by predictive prophecy in particular. Matthew 5.18 Jesus, looking back at the Old Testament law, the work of the mouthpiece, the nabi of God, the prophets, he says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, remember this verse? Not the smallest letter or the least stroke of the pen, seraph and yod, seraph. You know what seraphs are? Those of you in graphic arts know what that is, right? Helvetica, Ariel, they don't have seraphs. They don't have knobs on them. Times, New Romans times, those all have knobs on the end of them. That's a seraph. And in Hebrew, they're important. Because if you have a letter that has a serif, it can look exactly like a letter that doesn't have a serif. And if it has a serif, it's a whole different letter. But those bumps are important, and they're little tiny bumps on Hebrew letters. And then the yod. The yod is like an apostrophe. You write the word can't or don't. You put a little apostrophe there. That's an actual letter in the Hebrew language. It's called a yod. And the yod was a tiny little like breathing mark, but it was actually a letter. And he says, not the smallest letter. That's what's translated here, the smallest letter, the yod or the least stroke of the pen, a seraph. He says, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus said the book is important and what the prophets wrote isn't the opinion or the musings of guys on rocks giving their best shot at what God must think. John chapter 10, how about this one, verse 35. He says in verse 35, Speaking of the Old Testament, he quotes the Old Testament in verse 34, and then he says, and the scripture, the writings, cannot be broken. You can't disregard it. Now, that's Jesus, and again, if you don't believe he rose from the dead, then I guess, you know, who's Jesus? I don't know, popular guy. No, 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 we believe he died and rose again. And if he did, and he thinks this book is important, I don't care what the professors at UCI think, I really don't, I'm going to go with the guy who died and rose from the dead, right? That's just kind of where I'm heading on the whole thing. Oh, that's silly. Seriously, if, if this is all just a big fat joke, let's go to dinner and play golf in the morning. It makes no sense to me. But if there is a man who came from heaven, solved the ultimate problem that we have, that we are sinners and the wages of sin is death, and he came to reverse that problem and prove it by physically rising from the dead, if he indeed did that, and he takes the Old Testament and the 39 books, which he called the law, the prophets, and the writings, and he says, these are the words of God, and they cannot be disregarded, and everything in here is going to be fulfilled down to the smallest letter and the smallest bump on every letter. See, then I think I'm going to listen to him. If it's all a joke, then let's just stop doing all this nonsense. But if it's the truth, then we'll all be judged by this book one day, which is exactly what Jesus says. And we will be. There is, he says, someone who judges you. He says, I don't have to judge you. There is someone who judges And it's the writings that you read so diligently. And you think in them you have eternal life, but he says they refer to me. And they do. That's another sermon. How are we doing? You still with me? Apostolic descriptions. New Testament claims about the Old Testament. And we've already looked at those. Is that not on there? 2 Timothy 3.16, 1 Peter 1.10, we've already dealt with those. 
I said 2 Peter a couple times tonight. You don't have to correct me afterwards. I know I said it wrong. 1 Peter chapter 1. All right. Now we can go to that page change there. Claimed by the documents, the New Testament. What do the New Testaments claim? Several things. Have I lost you? Is that right? Great. Page 19? Is that where we're at? All right. Claimed by the documents, New Testament. What's the promise? Well, a couple things. Let's start with the word just for a bit of symmetry here. We, we talked about the word nabi. Let's talk about the word apostolos. Apostolos, nabi is not transliterated. It's actually translated prophet. Apostolos is just transliterated for us into English. You know what the difference between translation and transliteration is, right? Transliteration is baptizo turning into baptize and apostolos turning into apostle and angelos turning into angel as opposed to angelos turning into messenger or apostolos turning into sent one, right? Or baptized turning into dunk or dip. That would be a translation. This word has made it into English, much like inspiro turned into inspiration for Tyndale. The word apostolos turned into apostle for us in English. Apostle. There's a disadvantage to transliterating words. We sometimes miss their meaning because they're not translated. If baptizo was translated to dip or to dunk, we would get it. There would be no confusion. But there is confusion because we have an archaic English word that really was not an English word. Same thing with apostle. Apostle means sent one, authorized agent, emissary, envoy, representative. In the ancient world, you would send an apostolos because you couldn't pick up a phone and call someone. You couldn't say, hey, it's the king. And I want to tell you, because you're 500 miles away, I say, launch the missiles. You couldn't do that. You had to send an apostolos who was authorized, had some proof of his authorization to go 500 miles away and tell the troops, launch the missiles or the slingshots and the bows and arrows. That was the emissary, the envoy, the representative, the authorized agent. That's what apostles... Now, that's the word in the New Testament. The apostles, very important. They had a special role, and there were 12 of them. Be and oh, well, I thought a lot of people, just like there's words that we use in a technical sense and a non-technical sense, the word apostolos is used in a technical sense and a non-technical sense. I know it's used in a technical sense, and it should in your English translations be with a capital A, and there are only 12 capital A apostles because there will be 12 apostles inscripted, it says, on the foundations of the walls of the new Jerusalem. That's the promise of God. So there's 12 now, to guess who the 12th is, that may be hard for some of you. That's a different discussion. But there's 12, capital A, authorized emissaries of God. Okay? Here's the promise to them, that they would speak for God. Things like this, Matthew chapter 10, verse 20. Just to set the paradigm up. This is not the specific promise, but the paradigm. He's speaking in the future about the apostles that he commissions, and he says, it will not be you speaking, but it will be the spirit of your father speaking through you. And I understand that is a verbal promise, but that's the kind of power the apostles had. The father, right, is speaking through them by the agency of the spirit. Do you see something that sounds like inspiration? That's it. The spirit is the agent driving the person to put the end result out there. In that case, Matthew 10, a verbal statement that is God's statement. Or a written statement, inspiration, that is God's statement. How about this passage? John 14, 25. 
John 14, 25. Now, this one is important. Critical, I mean, they're all important, but this one's essential to the doctrine of written inspiration, or theopanoustos, God-breathed doctrine. Verse 25 reads this way. I'll read 25 and 26. I should have put both those verses down because 26 is really the key. John 14, 25, and 26. All of this I have spoken while I was with you. This is the upper room discourse. Sunday school grads, you remember that? Right? We're up in the upper room. He's going to do the Last Supper and all that. And he's there and he's, he's, he's giving the last minute locker room discussion to his apostles before he sends them out. The 12, he called them, right? One was a betrayer. He's got to be replaced. But there's the apostles to be sent out. He says, I've spoken all this while I was still with you, but... Here again, you're never going to get the doctrine of inspiration until you get this element in it, the agency, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, who the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. That's a promise from God. Why is that so important? It's important because of Matthew 24, 35. Here's what Matthew 24, 35 says. Remember this? You'll remember this. Heaven and earth, this is Jesus speaking, will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Who wrote that? Jesus, right? No, Jesus didn't write Matthew 24. Who wrote Matthew 24? Matthew, right? Matthew said that Jesus said that his words would never pass away. But Matthew wrote him. Maybe he got it wrong. Is that really what Jesus said? That's pretty much what's going on in most seminaries today. People trying to figure out how Matthew, Mark, and Luke in particular, and John, I don't know, he's a weirdo. We'll throw him in too, some of our studies. Uh, how did they come up with all this? I know what happened. Mark and priority, reliance. We've got to come up with Q because there's got to be a document because where Mark and Luke, they agree. Well, I don't know. What about, what about Matthew over here? And then he, I don't know. Let's build a big paradigm, and then we've got to pull something else in. Maybe it's the Gospel of Thomas. Maybe it's a, a whole list called the Quelli, the, the list of Christ's sin. I don't know. Somehow, we've got to figure out a human way that all these, these Gospels came together because their words are like identical here, and then over here, they go into two different perspectives on the, I don't get it. How could they have done this? Surely they were doing this. Well, I got Matthew, I got Luke, I got Mark. Uh, let's figure this out. That's not the promise of inspiration. The promise of inspiration is, I will send the counselor, this is inspiration, and he's going to teach you all things and remind you of everything I said. And what I said, by the way, will never pass away. Now, how does that work? Either you believe that or you don't. You can call me a simpleton. Fine. Call Dr. Fabar as a simpleton. I'm a simpleton. If you want to say that. But I think seminaries and higher learning today have missed the point when we spend countless hours, and I've done it, right? Countless hours in postgraduate work, trying to figure out the literary dependence of one gospel on another. I'm tired of reading all that stuff because I believe Jesus said what he said and that the doctrine of the theopanoustos of scripture is true and that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, okay, here it comes, call me crazy, were independent literary documents governed and superintended by the Holy Spirit arriving right here, really if we want to throw in transmission, textual criticism, translation, from God. That's what I believe, right? And that's different than what you're going to hear in a lot of places. Call me a simpleton. Hey, in 60 years, we'll see who was right, right? We're all going to meet the author. We'll figure out whether we were just stupid to believe what it really says. Seriously. I mean, this is where I'm at. I, I, I function in those circles, right? 
I teach at the seminary, and I, I just get sick of, of not taking these statements for what they are. John 16, 13, here's another one. Later in the Upper Room Discourse, but when he, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He'll give you the imprimatur. Interesting that John records that in the Upper Room Discourse, who will later write the book of Revelation. The promise is critical. The apostles were critical. The commission to the apostles were that they would be used in a supernatural way to record God's truth. New Testament supporting claims. How about 2 Corinthians chapter 2? We don't have time to look at it. Here's the big hermeneutical mistake that is made in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Everyone thinks it's about us. It's not about us. It's about the apostles. Read it carefully. When it says things like this, who knows the thoughts of the man except the man the spirit within the man in the same way no one knows the thoughts of the god except the spirit of god we have not received the spirit of the world but the spirit who is from god says that we may understand what god has freely given us this is what we speak not in words taught by human wisdom but words taught by the spirit expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words the man he says without spirit doesn't accept the things that come from the spirit of god they're foolishness to him because they're spiritually disturbed discern the we's there are not you and me the we's we're the ones that i hope are spiritually discerned because we have the spirit of god but the spirit words of truth are coming through the apostles and paul then i've got to say is that 12 because he's the one untimely born he calls himself who is the agent of half of the new testament that's another sermon but the bottom line is that's the claim in, in first corinthians 2 big mistake half the commentaries miss it that this is an apostolic claim about the truth of inspiration Second, second one I want you to look at, or at least jot down, is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. It's just a nice, neat verse that ties together everything we've been looking at. It talks about you're not foreigners and aliens now, you're members of God's household. We are a household, it says, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. If you don't see that picture there, Old Testament, New Testament, Christ, that's the picture. The authoritative words of God through the apostles, or the prophets of the Old Testament, Christ, the living word, and the apostolic authoritative words of Christ through the Spirit, Spirit-inspired words, Spirit-inspired words, the living word, that's the great picture. We are now built on top of that. We're not apostles, we're not prophets. We are built into that, it says. The whole building now is being joined together and it rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. The Lord wants to interact with people who have their confidence in the foundation of the apostles, Christ, and the prophets. One more, 2 Peter 3, 2. He says, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Holy prophets, that's the commands of the past, current commands through the Lord, through the apostles. Another thing that's worth jotting down, we have no time to look at, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, and I, I don't want to drift into apologetics here, but again, the things that make me know that the apostles are apostles, according to 2 Corinthians 12, 12, is that every apostle who was speaking biblical truth or writing biblical truth had the marks of an apostle. Here's the verse. The things that mark an apostle, he says, signs, wonders, and miracles were done among you with great perseverance. Which, by the way, if you're looking for God to raise the dead and, and heal the blind and all of that, you've you got to realize those things were done. Not so that everyone could be healthy, wealthy, and wise. They were done to authenticate in three rashes in biblical history the written revelation of God. 
Moses, the first rash, right, and Joshua, that day, Pentateuch. The middle classic period of the apostles, typified by Elijah and Elisha. Miracles. New Testament apostles. Peter was raising people from, from, from uh, uh, paralytics from mats as well. Why? Now, when you got a guy being healed from a migraine headache, and, and it, it makes for dramatic TV when they fall on the stage, but we don't really know what happened. I want to see the sunken eyeballs brought back. And if that happens, by the way, since the canon is closed, that's more on that next week. The Bible says I shouldn't say, great, finally I've got a real apostle in the modern age. I ought to run because the next predicted rash of the miraculous, real suspension of natural law is the coming of the Antichrist who comes with wonders and signs, right? So here's the thing. You're looking for a miracle. You, you don't really want to look for that, right? The miracles you want to look for are the miracles that substantiated this book. And this book now we should hold as sacred scripture, the writings of God, because they were authenticated, to throw in another passage, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, authenticated through the signs, the imprimaturs, that marked the apostle. Signs, wonders, and miracles. You can, heal, you can heal the secret migraine headache all day that I can't see on channel 40, but that wasn't what was going on in the book of Acts. The acts of the apostles were acts of the apostles, not the acts of slick TV guys. TV guys. See, I held back so many words that come to my mind, and I just, it's so diplomatic by the time it comes out. Spurgeon used to say that a lot. Spurgeon used to say, you would thank me if you knew what I didn't say. <laughs> right? Supporting claims of the New Testament. Claims of the apostles. Oh, man, I've already done all this. Haven't I? All right. Deja vu. Understood by people today. We'll do this as fast as can possibly be done. Liberalism. Here's what liberals think, and I know I don't have time to explain all this, but the rise of people that take the word and say, well, it's really not God's written word. Hey, it's good thoughts, some good thoughts, because we don't like it all. Some of it's outdated. Some good thoughts by good people to help us do good things. That's the liberal line on the Bible. Eh, it's all right. Not all of it. A lot of killing in the front part, and then that stuff about homosexual, I don't care for that. But, you know, some of it's all right. And that's good stuff written by good guys to help us do good things. Okay? Neo-Orthodox which is a lot like modern uh, emergent pastors. Hey, this is a tool. This gets a little more believable. A tool through which God may speak to you. It's not the codified propositional record of God speaking. It's a tool through which God speaks to you. Maybe the text will be used to inspire you. That's the neo-orthodox view, and we don't have time to expand on that. Show you how prevalent these views are today just by... A process of elimination here. Thousand church staff members, right? These are like children's directors, youth pastors, senior pastors, counseling pastors, right? Do you believe the Bible to be the inspired word of God? I've got that printed there for you, okay? Now you get Methodists, Episcopalians, United Presbyterians, Lutherans, and Baptists. I don't know. What do you think? Here you go. Ready? These are staff members, right? Seminary grads, half of them. Here we go. Methodists that said, no, I don't believe. What's the question? That the Bible is the inspired word of God. That was the sentence on the survey. 82% said, nah. <laughs> Disappointing to you, I can tell. Sorry, it gets worse. The Episcopalians, hmm, yeah. 89%, almost 90. United Presbyterians, not the OPC, this was not some others. This is United Presbyterians. 81%. No. 
Lutherans, Martin Luther, surely they were into it. I mean, Luther was giving his life for the written word of God. 57%. Ha! Baptists, those Jerry Falwell types. Surely you work at those churches. You got to believe this. They cut your feet off. 57%. Didn't do much better than the Lutherans. Didn't do better at all. Oh, we're out of time. I want to go on, but we can't. So let's stop. You guys all right? Let's pray. Let's pray. We need to pray. It would be good. Let's talk to God before we go. God, thanks for tonight. Thanks for letting us think through these issues. Thanks for letting us, I mean, we just flew through this. I pray that those that want to go deeper would do what I've asked, and that is to grab some of these books dig in, dive in. For those that just need this kind of survey, and it is a survey, I pray it would be just helpful for them, strengthen their heart, let them think this through, and understand that they can't really be consistent and pick and choose in this book. They can't be consistent logically or in any other way if they, if they think, well, maybe just good thoughts by good men. It, it, it's either a book that is filled with false representations about itself by people that I guess didn't do what they said they did, like rise from the dead, or it's your words codified in black and white statements of grammar and vocabulary. And they're there for us to process through our minds so that we might understand what your mind is all about and what your truth is all about. And while we said last time it may not be exhaustive, it doesn't give us every topic and every answer for every question we might have, what it gives us is adequate for us that we might live life the way it's supposed to be lived, believe in the things we ought to believe in, trust in you the way we should. So God, I pray that you would help us to think this through and live a consistent Christian life. And I pray it wouldn't be said of Compass Bible Church that 57% of us say we don't believe it's the written word of God. Help us do our homework. Either it is or we need to just check out of this thing altogether and give it up. One or the other, God. Help us with this, I pray, as we work through it in Jesus' name. Amen.